Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fake TV Critic, a podcast where I discuss the week's biggest TV news headlines, recap and analyze some of my favorite shows, and let you know what you should be watching. To start the news this week, um, another sad death from a beloved actor, Willie Garson, who played Stanford on Sex and the City and in the Sex and the City movies, and who was also a regular on White Collar on USA with Matt Bomer, passed away this week after battling cancer at the very young age of 57. He also had recurring roles on shows like uh, Hawaii Five O and Supergirl, and he back in the 90s, recurred on Boy Meets World. He was on episodes of You've Seen Him in Something. He provided voices on Big Mouth, and he was on Hot in Cleveland and Pushing Daisies and Medium. Um, He did the CSI shows, uh, Stargate in the early 2000s. Um, He was in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer that I remember from high school. Yeah, he was a very prolific actor and also was in one of my favorite movies. I never watched Sex and the City or White Collar. Um, I will always remember him as the bald anesthesiologist in uh, Fever Pitch with Drew Barrymore and Jimmy Fallon. And as of his death, he had just finished filming the Sex and the Series sequel show and just like that. So luckily we do still have more things coming out from Willie Garson, but... um, Another sad week after Norm Macdonald last week to know that Willie Garson died at the age of 57. Switching gears a little bit, uh, Peacock has ordered another high-profile TV series. A, they gave a direct-to-series order to a Pitch Perfect spinoff, the film series with Anna Kendrick and Rebel Wilson. This one is going to star Adam Devine, who played Bumper in the first two films. And it is going to focus on his character and is currently being developed and should be out sometime next year or in early 2023. Peacock is really amping up its original content moving forward. I've mentioned a lot of their shows. I've recapped a few. I blogged about the pilot of The Lost Symbol um, on, on the blog last week. And... They're really starting to try to branch out to higher profile stuff. I mentioned earlier in the year on the podcast that they were doing a TED series, the Seth MacFarlane films. They were making that into a TV series, or at least trying to. Um, And now this Pitch Perfect order and a few other things coming up that they're really trying to push for some um, more recognizable content. Also, speaking of recognizable content... Netflix announced that they are releasing a sequel series to Tiger King that is going to be coming out on November 17th. They have not said what it is about and who it's following, but we are going to be getting another Tiger King series. I don't know if it's going to be about Carol Baskin or maybe an entirely different um, Big Cat Zoo or something like that, or did they talk to... Joe Exotic in prison, but this makes for a nice little tie-in because Joe Exotic also has a book coming out on November 9th. So, um, yeah, that sh- that I'm excited for that. I loved Tiger King, and I know it's like passe and uncool to say that now because it was a year and a half ago that everyone was obsessed, but I'm all in. What else? Um, er, on Friday, this is a super strange story. On Friday, live during The View. The View is live, not live to tape, like late shows but live 
Anna Navarro and Sonny Hostin were pulled off stage in the middle of the show when Kamala Harris, the vice president, was supposed to be the guest because they apparently both tested positive for COVID-19. Now, why they pulled them in the middle of the show and not before the show is very confusing to me. Why are they getting COVID results like 15 minutes into filming an episode. Do you know what I, Like, if you're testing them, that's great. You should be testing them. But what is the point of testing them if their results aren't coming back until they're already live? It doesn't make any sense. So they pulled Anna and Sonny right before Kamala Harris was supposed to come out. But then rather than have the vice president come out without them, they put the vice president, understandably so, in a secure remote location away from anybody who may have potentially had contact with Anna or Sonny. But then later in the day, Anna and Sonny both tested negative for COVID-19. So, and they took both tests, the rapid and the regular test. And I think they tested negative for both of them. So I don't know where, like having two false positives at the same time in the same batch is super weird. Um, and then also, like I said, just pulling them out mid-show. Why are you getting results mid-show? What is the point of this test if you're if you're throwing them into a public interaction without having test results? So weird. So weird. And then finally, in renewal and cancellation news for the week, um, Netflix renewed a few series. It renewed uh, The Witcher for season three, and even though season two hasn't aired yet, and Sex Education, which just released its third season, got renewed for a fourth. HBO Max renewed the other two for a third season, which I'm very happy about. And then Paramount Plus renewed Rugrats for season two, even though they've only released five of the 20 plus episodes they were supposed to release for season one. And they announced the next batch of episodes are coming out in October, including a Halloween special. So that's fun. And in cancellation, Netflix canceled um, Hit and Run which, again, is a show that Netflix canceled without me even knowing it existed in the first place. Coming up this week on the podcast, I'm diving deep on the finale of Hulu's Nine Perfect Strangers and the season 41 premiere of Survivor, which I'm ecstatic to have back on my TV. And then I'm also going to be touching on the premiere of Fox's new singing competition series, Alter Ego, um, the third season premiere of RuPaul's Drag Race UK, and the final part of the first part of this of season 10 of American Horror Story subtitled Double Feature. So stay tuned for that. I don't even really know where to start with this next show, but I, I need to talk briefly about the finale to Hulu's Nine Perfect Strangers, which I started watching along with the rest of the world last month. And really enjoyed for the most part. It's it's Big Little Lies Redux, right? It's based on a book by Leanne Moriarty. It's by David E. Kelly. It's directed by Jonathan Levine. It stars Nicole Kidman. It has a giant ensemble cast of very impressive actors. And it seemed to be the next big prestige drama and all that good stuff. And the first few episodes were completely engrossing. I really loved the tone and the kind of like self-awareness of it. But the longer the show went on in its first season, the more I disengaged from it, I guess, is a good way to put it. Like, 
First of all, I, I watched it because I thought it was three episodes. When it popped up on Hulu, they released the first three episodes on one day. So with a cast like Bobby Cannavale, Nicole Kidman, Melissa McCarthy, uh, Michael Shannon, and all of these big names, I assumed this was a three-episode series. <laughs> so I started watching it thinking I was just watching three episodes. And then I was wrong, and it turned out to be eight. But then it really maybe should have been three episodes or a movie or something or six episodes or, I don't know, not existed at all or changed the ending of the book. If this is what the ending of the book was, I don't know, whatever it was, I didn't end up liking it in the last few episodes. So to recap, for those of you who maybe are still watching, although if you are still watching and haven't gotten to the end, don't listen to this episode because I'm going to spoil it. Nine Perfect Strangers, first of all, is a bad title because it they are not Nine Perfect Strangers. Three of those people are a family. Two of them are a couple. They are not perfect strangers. They know each other. Anyway, regardless, um, it's about people who go to this spa retreat thing called Tranquillum that is run by Nicole Kidman playing a Russian woman, again, for literally no reason, um, for her to be Russian. When you have Nicole Kidman, why not just make her Australian? It gives her the oh, you're not from America vibe that maybe would make people look up to her as some type of exotic non-American authority figure. I don't fucking know the point of her being Russian. I don't get it. Anyway, Nicole Kidman plays a Russian cult-ish leader who has these people come to her spa and basically learn to forgive themselves and the people who have wronged them. That's it. That's the point. And they float in pools and they go to therapy sessions and they get microdosed with psilocybin. And it's, uh, I honest to God don't know what I watch. I don't understand why this show exists. I really don't. I don't understand what the point was. I don't understand what the message was other than learn to forgive yourself, which like, what? Thank you. That was very cheap therapy. It, anyway, all these people have their own problems, you know, like, Melissa McCarthy's character is a famous author named Francis who got scammed out of money by a catfish online. Michael Shannon and his family lost their son and brother to suicide. Um, Luke Evans plays a journalist who is gay and just got out of a relationship because he panicked when the man wanted to have kids. Uh, Carmel deals with her violent side. Um, who else is in this damn show? Uh, the couple, who I still don't know their names, do not remember their names, are there because they're having issues because he won the lottery and now they have mo money, mo problems. Like, it, Bobby Cannavale's character, Tony, is there because he was an ex-football player, player who is now a drug addict. And, like, it's just uh, so un exciting in so many ways but like the cast is so good uh, so good melissa mccarthy is the reason to watch the first few episodes nicole kidman other than having a very bad at times russian accent and again why not just make her australian um is very good despite this accent michael shannon always amazing luke evans even was decent in the most under one of the most underdeveloped characters we had, oh, Jessica is the girl's name, and she's in the couple, and she's a media influencer, and she was funny. Um, who else is in this damn show? Manny Jacinto from The Good Place. He plays um, 
Masha, Nicole Kidman's right-hand man, Bobby Cannavale, obviously always good. Regina Hall is Carmel, who I am so happy for her career resurgence after Black Monday, because I loved her in the scary movies. But now that she's getting to show us a whole other side of herself, and it's wonderful. And I don't know, it was, this cast was great, and it really buoyed this very slow beginning, and these then more absurd scripts toward the end of the series. And then like last, the second to last episode, I did not like, I thought was very boring. And it was the married couple coming to the conclusion, seemingly out of nowhere that they were just going to renew their vows. And then it was the Marconi family led by Michael Shannon, all of them deciding they were going to take LSD combined with mushrooms and weed and some other shit so they could talk to their dead child slash brother. Why? Like, I did not understand this at all. In the final episode, a very large chunk of it is just their trip, is their drug trip that Masha goes on with them because she wants to get in touch with her dead daughter. And and now I... I am a rational thinking person, um, but I am also the kind of person that if this opportunity was presented to him, I might be like, you know what? If I'm here and it's under controlled circumstances, like maybe I will do this, but I'm not going to do it because I actually believe I'm going to talk to my dead family member. Like that is some weird, unrealistic, unrelatable shit to me. And the fact that they all, the whole Marconi family ended up sharing a delusion like it was like they were all tripping but it wasn't like napoleon who's the father saw the son so they all were like watching napoleon interact with this person who wasn't there no they all saw zach the son slash brother at the same time saying the same thing it didn't make any fucking sense at all and then on top of that after we also get this reveal that made no fucking sense that carmel is the person who has been sending threatening text messages to Masha and also in the past shot her, which is the event that led to Masha building Tranquillum. So like, what the fuck? Like this flashback that we have been seeing of Masha being shot in a parking garage by a black man with a milky eye was Carmel all along with pubes on her face. Like it didn't make any sense no sense at all and then for carmel to be that fucking out of her mind to hunt down the woman who cheated who her husband cheated on her with twice once to shoot her and then to threaten her and go to her retreat and then for masha to have no idea this is who carmel was until she's there is just again it makes no sense and it was a stupid twist that we did not need then masha locks carmel in a flotation pod and then locks everyone else in the room with her and then simulates the fucking building being on fire so they all have a seemingly near-death experience so they can like bring out and tell everyone else their dreams and their regrets and then being that close to death is really good for opening up and being vulnerable. Like, you are fucking crazy, all of you. The people who are there and aren't just, like, immediately calling the cops, Masha for doing it, um, Manny Jacinto's character for helping. Like, you all need the therapy that you are purporting to give. Holy fuck. And then for the end of it, everyone to be like, oh, my God, but Masha really gave us this great thing. We're not going to report her to the police. 
She drugged you. She manipulated you. She made you think you were killing yourselves. She lied to you about all of it. This is crazy. I, I, what? Like, and then for everyone to get what they needed at the end after like being dosed, drugged, lied to, manipulated, and then everyone's like, but I'm going to cover for Masha because this is actually what I really needed. I am very confused. Like, was the message of this show, drugs are great. Drugs are amazing. Do all the drugs. Like, is that the message? Is that the theme? Is that the thesis of Nine Perfect Strangers? Do all the drugs? Like, one of the final images we get is Masha on the cover of The New Yorker with the headline, Psychedelics to the Rescue. What? What? She was putting drugs in your smoothies and didn't tell you. What? What? Someone died in her care previously. But we're all forgiving it because we all got what we want. But did we all get what we want? Is that just Francis making up the ending of the story at the end? I don't know. It was such a weird ending. It came out of nowhere and I hated it. And again, the message seems to be, oh, guys, have you tried drugs? They're so good. Drugs are just great. We should all be doing drugs all the time. Drugs solve all your problems. What? What? No. I don't understand. God, how could a show that started so promisingly with this cast squander it so badly with such a bad finale, a bad last couple of episodes? There was no point to like anything that happened. Francis falls in love with Tony. Cool. What the fuck else happens? No, no one gets in trouble. No one gets in trouble. What? What? Was the book this bad? Did anyone read the book? Did you read the book? And was it this bad? What? I can't. I'm done. I can't. Guys, this is going to sound so dramatic. And I'm going to apologize in advance. But this was the most normal I have felt in 18 months was sitting down to watch Survivor. <laughs> and again, I don't mean that to sound as melodramatic as it does, but like it really was a sign of a return to normalcy. Survivor has been a part of my life and of the television landscape for 20 years and 40 seasons. And we did not get a new season for almost a year and a half. When we went into lockdown in the beginning of 2020, Survivor season 40 was already airing and we got no new seasons of Survivor since then. So it has been years since this show was filmed and over a year and a half, almost a year and a half rather, since we've gotten new episodes. And for something that has been so consistent and so reliable, that really was one of the things that kind of hit hardest for me during this pandemic was like the interruption of the little parts of our lives. Like for me, it wasn't so much 
that like my entire life was upended. Cause like for me, it was easy to adjust to things like working from home and teaching remotely and being so bored that I started this podcast where I just yell at my laptop. But it was in the small things of like, I can't go to the grocery store and get some things that I want, or I can't go to a restaurant that I enjoy because it closed. Or in this case, I can't watch this show that I have been able to rely on being on TV in the fall and in the spring for the majority of my lifetime. So having Survivor back makes me feel so good (laughs) and grateful and in a weird way, hopeful and that things are turning around. And beyond that, this was also a really welcome return for me personally to what I love about Survivor. In a lot of recent seasons, I feel like Survivor has stopped being so much about the show and the game and more about the twists and the gimmicks and the themes and all that stuff. And it's resulted in a lot of really forgettable seasons, I think. Like, I struggle to even remember a lot of the winners a lot, in some cases, even a lot of players in these seasons, and sometimes even the themes of these seasons, because they just seem to be there to be a quick gimmick to get people who maybe used to watch to tune back in, to keep the longtime watchers invested. But what we Survivor fans really want is a back-to-basics season. I've been saying it for years. I've talked to friends about it for years. It's what we really want is going back to what made this show great. Put a bunch of strangers with big personalities on an island and be like, make it out alive, bitches. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what made those first couple of seasons, which 20-plus years later are still the most memorable, so great. It was Richard Hatch being such an over-the-top personality that he rubbed everyone the wrong way, but still played such an intense and memorable game. It was throwing everyone together in the Australian Outback and pitting the likable person versus the person who played the game best with Tina and Colby. It was That's what we loved to see was gameplay, was strategy. We don't need Redemption Island or Exile Island or Ghost Island. We don't need a million immunity idols. We don't need production intervening and basically assigning a winner, Ben. We don't need that. We just need the game because the game is what makes the show great. And that's closer to what we're getting this season. We don't have a theme. The name of the season is Survivor 41, love. They took away their food. Again, love. Like I said, I've talked to my friend about this and, you know, we've been watching Survivor as long as it's been on the air. And one of the things we always say is like how hard the game used to be versus now. We're like, there are 10 immunity idols in play and rewards and advantages and extra votes and all kinds of shit all the time. Whereas like back in the day, you didn't even get food. Like, go back to taking away their food. And that's what they did. No rice this season. Um, There's punishment this season that if you do poorly, you're punished. If you don't win, not only do you not get anything, you get punished for it. And in this first episode, the two tribes who lose the opening challenge have to then go back to camp and choose between a brain puzzle or 
a physical challenge where they have to fill two barrels of water of two barrels with water in four hours walking up and down a beach. And both tribes choose the physical challenge, which to me is a choice, but okay. Then later at the immunity challenge, there's only one out of three tribes that wins immunity. The other two have to go to tribal and eliminate someone. And there's an advantage that comes into play there, but it's not as super distracting. It's a die that if you play it when you think you're in trouble, you can pull a slip of paper that gives you a one in six chance of getting immunity. The logic being that like, well, if you think you're going home anyway, just do it because the worst that's gonna happen is you're gonna go home anyway, which you already thought was gonna happen. So that can come into play later. Um, but there's there's no like, like I said, like multiple immunity idols. There's no, um, what's that thing, the advantage, the, the legacy advantage, all that shit. So far, none of that. But only one tribe gets immunity and the other two have to vote somebody out and give up their flint. So if you lose, not only do you have to go to tribal, you lose your fire potentially. So if there's rain or something and your fire goes out, you are fucked because you lost an immunity challenge. That is so hardcore. Basically, this season doesn't have a theme, but it should just be like Survivor. Buckle up. I love it. I love it. So we meet, we have three tribes of six people each. So we have 18 contestants and two are already gone by the end of this premiere. And I am for it. So the three tribes are Yua. Hmm, why can't I remember any of their names? Yua, Luvu. They're the two that have to go to tribal. What's the winning tribe's name? I completely forget. Yasa? Yeah. Yua, Luvu, and Yasa. Sorry, I should have taken notes, but I was just so excited watching this that I wasn't even thinking that I would talk about it on the podcast. But of course I am because I missed it so much. And this really was a great premiere. And I really do highly recommend watching it. So you meet the three tribes. So far, I don't love or hate anyone too much, which is great. That means that the editors are doing an amazing job of like setting everyone up kind of equally, showing us who like maybe the major players are going to be, but not really painting them as heroes or villains yet. I will say though, that of the people we've met, I do already have some favorites. I do, I love Ricard, who is on the Yua tribe. He is a gay man and he is married to a trans man who is pregnant with their child. That's amazing. I, I like Danny, who's an ex-football player. He's on the Luvu tribe. And he just seems really earnest and down to earth. And I love that. I like Nasir, who's on the Luvu tribe. Um, he learned English by watching Survivor. That's a great story. I like Shan, who is also on the Yua tribe. She is a former Seventh-day Adventist pastor who is like playing this role of, I work for God, but I'll cut your throat. And like, that's fun to me. Um, it's a really well-balanced cast. Even the person that they're clearly trying to make look like a villain, whose name is JD, um, seems to be really good TV so far, so I don't hate him. So that's great. And like I said, this is just, it's a really great balance of personalities of like going back to what would it be like if we just shoved a bunch of people with 
diverse backgrounds, diverse histories, uh, queer people, people of color, people of all ages. And it's going back to the social experiment aspect of Survivor. And honestly, I couldn't be happier than with it. With I couldn't be happier with it. Then we also got this really, I thought, fascinating conversation with Jeff Probst at the beginning of the episode where he says, you know, whenever I'm calling people into tribal, I always use the phrase, come on in guys. And after 20 years and 40 seasons, I want your opinion on if we should retire that phrase, specifically the word guys. And like, this is a conversation that I have been having with people for a very long time. Um, No one that I know is offended by the word guys, including trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people that I know. We know that we're not, that you're not being called guys, that it's not misgendering or whatever, that it's just a colloquial term for everyone, meaning everyone. But there are people who are sensitive to it, and that also can't be ignored. Um, And Jeff is a very is always seeking to do and be better. And I think this conversation also may stem from issues with uh, the last season that was not an all winter season. There was a guy, I think his name was Dan or Don, Danny or Donnie, I forget, but he was removed from the game because he was like sexually harassing a bunch of the women there. So I think this is probably born out of conversations that are being had in production surrounding like how do we create a safe environment for these people how do we make everyone feel included and safe in this environment and maybe that's where this is stemming from or maybe it's just a movement because jeff kept saying this is a new era of survivor and like i never even would have thought twice about the phrase come on in guys but if that is something that is bothering some viewers, maybe bothered some applicants, and as we saw here, bothered at least one contestant, Ricard, then what's the difference if we stop saying the word guys? What's the difference if we say, come on in, instead of come on in guys? What's the difference if we say, come on in y'all, or say or don't say anything? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's so easy to change your language and make people feel welcome, and like, just do it. Do you know what I mean? Like. Especially in this case, if Jeff is conscious of it, and he even says later in the episode, because everyone votes at the beginning, and there is a queer woman whose name escapes me at the moment. I will try to remember it. Heather, maybe? No. That's a person, though. There is a Heather. Is it a Heather? I don't remember. I don't remember this person's name, but there is a queer woman who says at the beginning, as a queer woman, I do not feel excluded by the word guys. I don't think it needs to change. But like, it's literally the first second they're on this boat, they're having this conversation. So a couple days later, after thinking about it, Ricard, who is again, married to a trans man. So it's like living every day with someone who is very aware of their gender and their performance and the way that they are perceived as that gender in the world versus maybe the way that they feel or the way that others perceive them versus the way they present. It's very complicated being a trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender fluid, whatever, non-binary, male, female, assigned at birth and identifying cis, trans, however you want to think of it. It's not easy for everyone to live with that. And Ricard lives 
with a person who goes through that struggle daily. And after thinking about it, it's like, I think that we should retire the phrase. Jeff says, I agree. The reason we have this conversation is because I think we should retire that word too. So like, if Jeff is the one who wants to retire the word, and it's his word, he invented the phrase, he's the one who perpetuated the phrase. And like, once again, I didn't even realize that this was a thing that was so central to the show, but here we are having this conversation. I think that's insane to see on a CBS show in the year 2021. Like if you look at the rest of CBS's lineup, it is very old fashioned. Um, I recapped a couple of their new pilots on the blog this week with NCIS Hawaii and FBI International. It's a very old fashioned network. They're not exactly forward thinking. They are not exactly the avant-garde but here they are having this conversation in one of their oldest and most reliable, again, I, I keep saying that word as if it's like, you know, a World War II vet or something, but it's been around forever. It invented this genre of reality TV, right, basically. And we're having this conversation there. I think that's great. I think that really signals that Survivor is not only here to stay, but also here to change with the times. And they're really taking criticism seriously and doing better changing all of that i love that that and i'm gonna tie that back into so many fans wanted to see a season without a million gimmicks without a dumb theme like millennials versus gen x or blood versus water or brain brawn and beauty all winners like some of those are fun but like we really just want to see some great gameplay. We want to see a bunch of people with different backgrounds and life experiences coming together and bonding and fighting <laughs> and competing and playing this game that we have all fallen in love with in the past 20 plus years. And it does that. It's back. I loved this premiere. I am so looking forward to the rest of this season. I hope the producers can keep it up. This season is going to be intense. It's shortened. It's only 26 days instead of what is it usually like 39, something like that, I think, because of the quarantining process where like that ate into production time. So I think that's going to be super interesting to see how quickly we're going to play through this game. That's also very reminiscent of the first couple of seasons. I'm just, I'm just so optimistic and so excited. And I hope you are too. If you've never watched Survivor, it's a great time to start. It's so engrossing. You will, I promise, if you love the reality TV competition format, you will be obsessed. It's It airs Wednesdays at 8 o'clock on CBS. And then it's also streaming the next day on Paramount+. Plus. If you dropped out of Survivor ever, again, it's a great time to jump back in. I'm so excited for this season. I'm so excited for this season. I'm going to try something new for this episode and kind of give like some brief thoughts on some shows that I've been watching or that I started or that are new or whatever, and just give some thoughts on them and how I felt rather than going kind of like in depth for a 15-ish minute segment, maybe give like five to each of them. So one that I really am eager to talk to anyone about, um, because I feel like no one is talking about this season, is American Horror Story, which I get that a lot of us gave up on a long time ago. This show has not been great in a very long time. 
to the point that I wonder if I ever actually did like it <laughs> or if I just liked the idea of horror on TV, which now you don't need to get it from American Horror Story. But this season, double feature, I have been really into it. I really liked the first five or so episodes of this season. So the premise of the season is it's two stories in one season. So the first story is being told across six episodes, the second story, and then last four. And the first six episodes are subtitled Red Tide, and they take place in my favorite place in the entire world, Provincetown, Massachusetts, in the winter off season. And it's uh, thematically about like greed and talent and the creation of art and the pursuit of art and where the intersection of art and commerce is. And the reason I really liked this season is that it kind of moved away from how silly and stupid and campy American Horror Story has gotten in the past few seasons and really returned to like that serious storytelling that even when it's, I don't know, not a super serious story, telling it in a serious way makes it feel more grounded. And even though it's a really ridiculous plot for the season where like taking a pill turns you either into the most genius version of your talented self or into a vampire zombie doomed to roam the earth in search of human blood. Um, that's a ridiculous, absurd plot, but it really works within the bounds of the characters, I think. And the first five episodes I thought were really great. They were creepy and fun and entertaining. And one of my main issues with American Horror Story is that I always like the way it starts, but then by the end of the season, it completely falls to pieces. So I think maybe that the setup of this season where it's one story in six episodes and one story in four episodes kind of ensured that it wasn't going to fall apart as much toward the end. And I think that's true. Although the final episode of the first part of the season, which aired this past Wednesday, still did not stick the landing. It's still Ryan Murphy and the American Horror Story, American Crime Story, even sometimes Glee. Ryan Murphy does not know how to write endings. And that's particularly evident in American Horror Story. And it was the same thing for this episode. This episode did not need to exist. I wish that episode five would have been the ending. It was a much more affecting way to end the story. This one was just silly, especially the coda at the end um, that took place in LA was just like, it leaned into that campy, silly stupidness that the rest of the season didn't. And I wish that it hadn't done that. Um, but all in all, it was a really worthwhile um, story, I thought. I thought it was successful for the most part. I thought it was entertaining all the way through, which is not always true of American Horror Story. I thought the performances were fun. I The cast is always great. Like, that's the reason that we keep coming back to this show, right, is the cast. I thought Angelica Ross was great. Macaulay Culkin was in this season and, for me, really stole the whole season. I thought he was wonderful and the only person that I thought was terrible in the first half of the season was, strangely enough, Sarah Paulson, who was playing a completely over-the-top character, and I was very confused by her whole character. Like, I didn't understand why her character drew on eyebrows when the makeup department just painted over Sarah Paulson's regular eyebrows. Like, if you're going to go for this illusion that she doesn't have eyebrows, so she, like, draws on her own, shave Sarah Paulson's eyebrows. 
because it was distracting to see a drawn on eyebrow over a whited out human regular eyebrow. It was also, she was just on a completely different show than the rest of the cast, but that's neither here nor there. Double feature continues with the second part of the season called Death Valley, which is something to do with aliens. And that part of the series starts this Wednesday at 10 o'clock on FX, and then episodes are next day on Hulu. So that was fun. Um, also on Wednesdays, Fox has a new reality singing show called Alter Ego that I watched and I hated. Um, it's basically, it's on after The Mass Singer. And I, I mentioned this on the podcast last week. It has a great judging panel. It's Will I Am, Nick Lachey, Alanis Morissette, and I forgot Grimes because I don't know who that is other than Elon Musk's wife, girlfriend, baby mama. I don't know. Um, and they, it's basically the voice, but instead of the chair facing the other way, so they can't see the person, the person is backstage, like covered in avatar, the movie kind of technology. And then a computer generated image is on the stage of what they quote unquote want to represent themselves as. And like, it's a fine premise for a show. The execution is severely lacking. <laughs> it's really ugly. Like the avatars do not, the skin is always like blue and purple and pink and green. And like, why, why can't we have human colored skin? And the mouths don't move and the faces don't move. It's just like trashy, like, early 2000s computer graphics and it just looks so bad and the singers are fine for the most part but I don't, the whole premise of the show is just like it's just the voice only seemingly made with less money like I, I don't I don't understand the purpose of it it's like you know people having sob stories and it's just not interesting and I don't know like you're gonna be mentored by these by these singers and celebrities. So it's, again, it's just the voice and the voice already exists and taps into that market. So why are we doing this alter ego thing? And like, I don't know. I, I thought when it was announced, it had promise. It sounded interesting to me. Like this whole idea of presenting yourself the way you want to be seen and not necessarily the way you look as a person who has always struggled with body image issues. Um, really tapped into something in me when I heard the idea for it, but then seeing it in practice, it's just, it's not good. It's very, it's very dumb. It's, it's, no, no. Like I, for me, what would have been interesting would be like, if you have like someone who is a Jennifer Hudson type where on American Idol, she was far and away the best singer on her season. And I'm sorry to say, Truth Bomb did not win her season because she's overweight. She's an overweight black woman. That is why she did not win her season. I'm fully convinced of it. America is racist, misogynist, and fat phobic. And I'm, that's just the way that I feel. So for me, it would have been interesting to see like, a really great singer who is maybe overweight or older or something, but then wants to present themselves as like a skinny blonde white girl, like a Billie Eilish or a Miley Cyrus or a Britney Spears or something. Because let's be real, we are willing to forgive when it comes to pop music, a lot of shortcomings in people's vocal ability if they're attractive or if they have a gimmick. like. 
Britney Spears is not a great singer and never has been, but she made catchy music and was cute and she danced and we loved watching her. That is why she is famous or why she was famous. So to have someone who maybe looks like a Britney Spears, but can sing like a Jennifer Hudson or something, maybe not exactly like a Jennifer Hudson, but you know what I mean? Who has like a big bombastic voice, I think would be interesting. But instead we're getting people who are like, video game characters. And that's not interesting to me. But if you want to give it a shot, new episodes are airing Wednesdays at nine o'clock on Fox. And also you can catch up on the first two episodes on Hulu. Um, And then finally, Drag Race UK returned on Thursday for its third season. This is like the shortest time I feel like in between regular seasons of Drag Race in history. Um, Lawrence Cheney was just crowned in season two, I want to say back in like March or April. Um, and we are already getting a new season of 12 New Queens. Um, the show is airing on WOW Presents Plus in America, on the BBC in the UK, and other places throughout the world. But um, this is a notable season for a few reasons. Again, one, because it was filmed so soon after season two wrapped up and is airing so soon after season two. But also, this is the first season of any drag race to feature an AFAB queen or assigned female at birth, a cisgender woman doing drag. And that is Victoria Scon, who I believe is a drag mother, daughter, sibling of Lawrence Cheney. Um, but she is on the series. She's really funny so far. Um, she does very well on the first episode. So that's great to see. Um, There was a lot of debate amongst fans of the show when it first started about whether or not cis women should be allowed on to the show. And like, I don't really understand why they shouldn't be. Um, Drag is everything and is for everyone. You know, everything we do is drag. It's on Drag Race US. RuPaul says, you know, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. And that's very true. We do drag all the time. Um, You know, when I teach my class and I turn off the gay voice as much as possible. That's me doing drag. I'm just doing straight male teacher drag. Um, But regardless, the cast is really fun. It is, there was also a lot of debate amongst fans that it was too white, but then again, that's, it's the UK. Um, But there's also a queen who is from Spain who moved to the UK five years ago and started doing drag in the UK named Theresa May. And she is, one of my favorites, maybe the most iconic entrance line of all time. She walks in the room and says, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Hate me because I'm an immigrant. And I died. That is so funny, so self-aware, so biting, so witty. And the fact that ES, you're ESL, you are on a different level, bitch. I Right now, I'm rooting for her for the win. <laughs> um Although I will say throughout the throughout the episode, um, there is some more evidence of the uh, questionable judging that was an issue on season two of UK and is currently an issue on season two of Drag Race Holland, which wrapped up its second season this weekend. And I still don't know who won because I refuse to watch the finale because of how awful the judging has been this season. Um, I did not particularly agree with the tops or the bottoms of this episode. Um, but, you know, whatever. There's some really interesting drag happening on this season, and I recommend it. Um, we have not only the cis female queen in Victoria Scone, we also have 
a Dragula type horror queen in a charity case who had some sickening, almost literally, looks for the first runway um, and is a kind of character that Drag Race, again, has never seen before. Like I said, Cheriza May, who I thought was wonderful. Veronica Green is back from season two since she had to drop out during the COVID break because she tested positive for COVID. And I loved Veronica on season two, so I'm excited to see her. Um, yeah, it's it, it looks like it could be a pretty decent season. I mean, that obviously remains to be seen, but... Oh, and the lip sync at the end. Oh, for, there's two lip syncs at the end. So RuPaul introduces this twist that the top two queens will lip sync for the win and the bottom two queens will lip sync for their lives. That's that's a nice little twist. Um, and the bottom two ends up being Anubis, who I could take or leave. She thought she was very funny and I did not find anything she said even remotely approaching comedy or being funny, but whatever. And Electra Fence, who I immediately loved and I don't think should have been in the bottom, let alone the bottom two. And Electra Fence's lip sync was nuts, like Cirque du Soleil level nuts. It was a great lip sync, especially for UK, which tends to have, in my opinion, very staid, um, uninteresting, for the most part, lip syncs. And a lot of that tends to be because, as we've learned over the course of three seasons now of the show and from Charlie Hyde's being on um, US Drag Race, that a lot of queens in drag in the UK don't lip sync. They sing live or they do comedy or they dance or whatever, but lip syncing is not a forte of many UK queens. So Electra Fence's lip sync was next level, especially for Drag Race UK. Um, I'll probably dip in with Drag Race UK at some point this season, because as you know, I can't not talk about Drag Race. Um, but yeah, for now, the season premiere is streaming on WoW Presents Plus and new episodes release every Thursday at two o'clock Eastern because that is when it airs live in the UK. All right, so stay tuned for this week's um, finales and premieres and my recommendation. Okay, coming up this week in premieres and finales, um, we're continuing with broadcast TV coming back for the fall season. On Monday, The Good Doctor returns to ABC for its fifth season. On Tuesday, NBC has its new sci-fi fantasy series, La Brea, premiering. And then Vanderpump Rules returns to Bravo for its ninth season, featuring about half of the original cast all having babies. Blech. On Thursday, Peacock debuts a new documentary series starring Demi Lovato about UFOs called Unidentified. Uh, Station 19, Grey's Anatomy, and Big Sky all return for ABC's Thursday night lineup. On Friday, Amazon releases a new season of its sports documentary series, All or Nothing, this one following the Toronto Maple Leafs in the NHL. Cops returns to some station called Fox Nation. I don't know what that is, but Cops is back. Yay. Netflix releases its limited series, Made, starring uh, Margaret Qualley, who was an Emmy nominee for uh, Fosse Verdon. SWAT returns to CBS, as does Magnum P.I. and Blue Blood, so the Friday Night lineup comes back. And Penn & Teller Fool Us returns for Season 8 on The CW. 
on Saturday, SNL comes back on NBC. And then on Sunday, PBS has the new season of Call the Midwife, America's Funniest Home Videos returns to ABC, and the second season of The Walking Dead World Beyond premieres on AMC. For finales, TLC has the finale of Darcy and Stacey. Netflix is airing the third season finale of The Circle. Big Brother ends this season on CBS, as does Dynasty on The CW. And then on streaming, Ted Lasso and Mr. Corman and end their seasons on Apple TV+. On Sunday, the season finale of Billions airs on Showtime and the season finale of Animal Kingdom on TNT. My recommendation for the week is a new series that just came out on Friday on Netflix called Midnight Mass. And this is by Mike Flanagan, who did The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor for Netflix. And he also did the Netflix film Hush, which I really liked. And he's done some other stuff, too. He did uh, Ouija, Origin of Evil. Um, what else? Uh, the Doctor Sleep film adaptation of the Stephen King novel. Um, he's, he's a really thoughtful horror filmmaker. And, like, I loved The Haunting series, especially Blind Manor. I know that's an unpopular opinion, but whatever. And so Midnight Mass is his newest limited series. It's seven episodes that are all very long. The shortest episode is an hour. <laughs> um, but it's about an isolated island, I think, off the coast of Maine. So it has, like, Stephen King vibes. And it's about a new priest who comes to the Catholic Church in this, like, fishing town island called Crockett Island around the same time as um, Riley, who got drunk one night when he was young and ended up accidentally killing a woman. So he's like the town pariah and he returns from prison to this small town and his high school girlfriend, crushed friend, also returns around the same time to be a school teacher and she's pregnant. And it's very much centered around like um, the Catholic church community on the island and like all of these different prodigal son type parable story things. And then um, some supernatural shit starts to happen around the same time as well. And it, it's an interesting and not entirely surprising allegory for um, religion as a, uh, like a drug <laughs> or religion as um, as an organized form of evil sometimes. And it's, it's really cool. It's really dark. And also, I will forewarn you, if you decide to watch it, it is slow. It's a slow burn. It's never boring, I don't think. But it does unfold very slowly. And I'm okay with that because I think that's what he did with especially The Haunting of Hill House as well. And I found it very entertaining. And I found uh, I found Midnight Mass, as well as some of these other things that Mike Flanagan has done, to be better because it's character-driven rather than, like, jump scares or monsters or whatever. Like, those things can be present, but what you are... What's really terrifying about it is seeing things happen to these characters that we've come to know and understand and learn about it's a very existential show it's a very philosophical show i 
really enjoyed it. The last couple episodes are batshit bonkers crazy. I highly recommend pushing through. If you're finding yourself underwhelmed or maybe even bored, like I said, I didn't find it boring, but I can see maybe how you might. The first like three to four episodes, I promise keep going. And it, while it reveals itself slowly, there is a definite climax. <laughs> so Midnight Mass is streaming now on Netflix. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fake TV Critic. And I'll be back next week with more recaps, more reviews, more news, and more analysis. Have a good week, everyone. Hey, hey, hey.